Hey, everyone, and welcome to We Gotta Talk. If you're new to the show, this is an issues-based podcast for curious people who want to see both sides of the story. I'm Sunny, an Emmy-nominated and AP award-winning TV journalist whose true passion in life is asking questions, talking to literally anyone about really anything. Join me each week as we dig in on one topic from every angle and walk away with a new perspective that just might change your life. Now... Let's talk. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to We Gotta Talk. I'm Sunny. I'm so glad you're here. This is an issues-based podcast where we dig deep from health to relationships, pop culture, and more. We take a topic and we dive in. And this is a little bit of a bonus series. I keep saying I'm taking a summer break, and I am mostly. Um, But there are so many interesting things that we need to talk about when I'm on vacation. And so I keep coming back and doing more. Anyway, um, if you don't know, I'm based in Florida, Orlando specifically. And um, the past few weeks have been um, somewhat of a ride. Uh, COVID, the Delta variant specifically, has hit Florida very hard um, in a situation now where Pretty much everyone I know, or at least someone I know, know, like two people through the uh, grapevine have gotten it. Um, whether or not they're vaccinated, it's it's catching. We're getting notices from school already. The kids have been in for three days, and it's already spreading. Um, so it's serious. You know, I think when you look at a headline in a newspaper and you see – you know, the concentration of red dots all over Florida and and you see how quickly this virus is spreading. It's one thing to appreciate it from afar, but when you're in it, it's it's kind of actually, it's calmer and crazier at the same time. Calmer in as much as um, being in the epicenter. Uh, You don't realize how crazy it is because you're just going about your day-to-day life, right? You're trying to maintain a sense of normalcy, and we are. Um, So you don't feel like it's as intense as it should be if you were outside looking in. But it is crazier, too, because everyone that I've spoken to in other parts of the country um, is just having a drastically different experience. Like I said, we're at the point where uh, just pretty much everyone we know has either um, caught it and been asymptomatic or has had some form of symptoms, whether it was the Alpha variant, which came through last year, or the Delta variant. Knock on all of the wood around as I bang on the studio. I have not, at least knowingly, had the virus yet I am vaccinated and um my husband Andrew is vaccinated too we don't know we don't know what's going on we don't think we've been infected with the virus because we have not been symptomatic but listen it's everywhere um so the reason I'm hopping on with um this special episode today is I I really want to give people an idea of where we stand right now in some of the hot spots around the country right so I'm interviewing people in the medical field over the next probably week and a half or so. It was going to be a three-part series that I was releasing all at once, but it's not working out that way schedule-wise. So what we're going to do here on We Gotta Talk is give you a little peek into what it's like on the front lines. Um, you can appreciate a fact on a newspaper cover page for its its craziness or whatever it is very briefly, but to live this or to hear a firsthand experience of what it's like to deal with people dealing with this virus every day is is quite a different story. So my hope is that as you listen to these interviews, you're getting an idea of what this variant is really like for the people dealing with it, and whether that's personally or whether that's um, people they're treating, patients they're treating. So in this first episode, we are speaking with a speech pathologist who is based in Southern New Jersey. 
And you know what was interesting about um, Allison Frederick, who is the um, subject of this interview, is that when we first talked, I was hoping to just get an idea from another one of the epicenters of how it feels, how the virus feels and looks up there. And when we began talking, it was very clear right off the bat how different this variant is impacting people, especially younger people. Um, so what you're going to hear in this interview is her experience working um, working with these patients who are recovering after the Delta variant of COVID. And what just blew me away, what just knocked my socks off, was hearing her say a lot of her patients are people younger, 20s, 30s, 40s, who have had strokes and are learning to talk again after having um, COVID, after having this virus. Um don't come at me and be like, you're a fear monger. This is happening. Whether or not it's happening to someone you know, it's happening. And as a person who, um, you know, prides herself on giving as much information as possible, that's what we do here. We talk to people who have um, life experiences that hopefully can illuminate the decisions that we make in our everyday lives. So I hope this interview with Allison is... Um, enlightening to you in some way. Again, she is a speech pathologist based in Southern New Jersey. I will link the article that she references during our conversation. She recently published a sort of a firsthand essay of what it was like to work in the healthcare field during the initial outbreak of COVID. We talk about the emotional implications of seeing these patients um, suffer. Some do well, some not do so well. We talk about um, the particular symptoms and issues that she's seeing this time around that might be different from the first variant that spread last year. We talk about the intricacies of how a person comes back from something like that. You have a stroke and you're 30 something and you're learning to not you're learning not only to talk again, how to chew your food again. I mean, I don't know about you, but I had no idea that that was a potential side effect or or um symptom, you know, a serious symptom of dealing with this virus. So I hope you enjoy this interview for um, all of the information that she she brings forth. And like I said, I will link the article she references in show notes, as well as any other information that you might need to know about her. She is amazing. And I just want to say a huge thank you to Allison for taking a few moments to share her experience with us. Um, all right, guys, enjoy the interview. We have Allison Frederick, who's a speech and language pathologist who is based in Southern New Jersey. Uh, the idea of these episodes or this episode is to give everybody a little bit of a better idea of what COVID looks like this time around. So Allison, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, absolutely, Sunny. So we chatted briefly offline and kind of got to know your uh, your work and what you're doing, but can you tell everybody basically what it looks like, the 101 version of what you do every day? Sure. So I am an inpatient uh, rehabilitation speech and language pathologist that mainly works with um, like the neuro population, meaning people that have had strokes or brain injuries, and also generalized uh, debility, meaning people who are just really run down and deconditioned from a variety of illnesses. And obviously, we all know one of those illnesses that causes a lot of deconditioning is COVID-19. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I would imagine your work two years ago has looked very different. Your patients look different oh, two years ago absolutely. than now. So is most of your work or most of your patients constituted of COVID patients right now? Um, so as of right now, the types of patients that I'm seeing are those patients that have been hospitalized for months, for, you know, multiple weeks, multiple months, and they're coming to us for rehab post a severe COVID-19 infection. And with those COVID-19 infections, we've seen things like people have complications like 
we've all heard about the ventilators. Um, people are receiving feeding tubes. People are very deconditioned. People are receiving trach tubes, which is a whole essentially like in your throat so you can breathe better and the ventilators are normally hooked up to them. Um, so we're seeing a lot of different kinds of COVID-19 related illness that people need pretty intensive rehabilitation from. Was this surprising to you? The virus unfolded in ways I think that surprised the general public, but then again, we're not in medicine. But I think we went when we went into this, especially with the first round, the big fear was the respiratory component of this virus. Right. And now hearing what you're saying, uh, the neurological side effects, yes. the stroke that causes the need for mm -hmm. what you do, which is speech language, uh, speech and language pathology yeah. and therapy is something we did not think of. Right. So, um, you know, I think the common misconception about COVID-19 is that it's just a respiratory illness. Um, it's like the it's like the flu or a bad cold, which in some cases it can be. We know that. However, I think that what the general public doesn't really understand is how intense this really is and how it can cause a lot of secondary illnesses such as blood clotting disorders that are causing younger and younger patients or people to have strokes and to have these um, other types of events. And also something that we don't think about is if you can't breathe and you need a ventilator, it means your brain is not getting enough oxygen. It means that it's, it's not able to work as it should, you know, so those types of things are things that people don't think about. And you can have what we call like anoxic events, meaning your brain is not getting enough oxygen. So which therein affects your entire body, you know, so it's like all of those secondary things that people don't think about. And you said when we talked that a lot of your patients are on the younger side as yes. well. What is the average age or can you break it down for us demographically? Um, I know it's hard to do everyone, but maybe yeah. of your patients. Yeah. I mean, I would say the, the people that we're starting to see uh, this go around are younger and younger as young as uh, early 20s. Um, early 20s. And, you know, I would say mainly um, what we saw a lot of the last time was like mid 40s, but I feel like it's trending downward. Um, and the feedback I'm getting from my friends who work around the country in various uh, medical settings are their patients are also younger. I spoke to a friend of mine who's a, a nurse practitioner, and she was saying that on their unit right now, she's like, it's really crazy because everybody is mid 20s, 30s, mid 30s now. Mm -hmm. This, with, this, with this is where I'm so glad you talked to me because, you know, as, as an independent journalist, you want to get information out there. You don't want to scare people because we understand right. that's, um, the name of the game generally in media. But I heard you talk and during our last conversation, the things that you were pinpointing specifically that you were concerned about, and it feels irresponsible to not have this conversation. I know there will be people right. who say, okay, enough. We know how common is it for a 21 year old? Well, it's more, what I'm hearing you say is it's more common now than it was the first time around. So to, right. to, to ignore the evolutionary sort of development of this virus feels irresponsible. So why talking to people like you is so important because you are seeing this, you aren't, you know, the, the random headline that we, once in a while scroll past, which says 35 year old dead from COVID, you are the person who's seeing it. And what I'm hearing you say is there are um, many more young people this time around. There absolutely are. And also too, something that we need to consider are the long-term side effects of COVID-19. So there are, there's a lot of literature coming out um, in the rehab world, especially about something called long COVID. Mm -hmm. Those people that have had these persist persisting symptoms and issues now 
months and months and months post their um, deemed recovery period. And these are younger people, you know, what are the and, symptoms that you're hearing. Um, so, well, first in speech and language pathology in the setting I work in, we're mainly concerned with um, obviously functional communication, but also memory, thinking skills, problem solving, organization, um, all of those higher level cognitive skills that allow all of us to plan, organize, reason, um, make decisions, um, learn from mistakes, like, you know, cause and effect types of things. Um, and people who are experiencing symptoms of long COVID are not only experiencing the chronic respiratory fatigue and like poor endurance, but they're also experiencing cognitive issues such as poor memory, poor organization, and a general fogginess that they did not have prior to having COVID-19. It's, it's terrifying. Allison. It, it really is, you know, and, and I, I think many of us really consoled ourselves the first time around, many of us in, in our demographic, by saying we're relatively young, right. relatively healthy. But what's different with this variant is that it is seeping into. And I've personally heard stories of kids as young as six and seven being impacted long term by their by their battle with this virus. Can you give me some specifics, Allison? And of course, without betraying any patient confidentiality or any identifying information, some specific stories that you, uh, some specific patients you've dealt with that have been particularly impactful or difficult for you to say. So, you know, it's, it's always tough because um, the type of rehab that I do, it is considered a short term stay, meaning people only generally stay, I would say on average two weeks, give or take, mm -hmm. you know, um, so having to make gains with somebody who's very young, for example, in their early twenties, that was on a ventilator and was bed bound for several months. It's very hard to get that person, um, back up and running, you know, and back up to doing what they need. So by the time they're done with us, they may not be able to do things on their own. They may not be able to feed themselves, dress themselves, bathe themselves, like those types of things. So they're still struggling with that. In other words, you're dealing with one component of their recovery, which is, right. are they making any developments there? Or what are you seeing? Right. Oh, yeah. People are definitely making progress and making gains. But what I don't think is appreciated right now that even the young, the very young population, it's taking quite a long time to get back to normal or, you know, or what you consider to be your baseline or your normal. Um, and that's something that's just not considered. And you know, because this is such a new virus, we don't know the long-term effects or the long-term outcomes. So we don't know if these people are temporarily um, being, you know, disabled by this, by the secondary effects of this virus, or if this is going to be something they have to battle for the rest of their lives and continually work towards improving. So, you know, even, um, you know, and like those things you think about um, old people in a nursing home, right? You think about pressure sores, right? Or bed sores, right? That's like the common name. Well, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you are in an ICU bed on a ventilator for weeks and months, you're going, you're at such an, a huge risk to develop something like that. And the likelihood is quite high only because, you know, it may not be safe to turn you constantly. It may not be safe to do all of those things that we need to do to prevent those things. So regardless of, of age, um, you know, you can still develop everything, somebody who's older, and I, you know, I am, I'm thinking of an amalgamation of a few younger patients that I've had over the past couple of months with, you know, with those types of things. And it's not something that you think of for a young person. You're like, oh, they're, they're 22. They got COVID. They're fine. They'll be fine. And it's like, oh uh, man, it can really escalate quickly. Yeah. I, can you give us specifics as to what the patients that you've worked with have dealt with and um, how the problem 
looks like, how the problem looks that you're actually rehabbing? Is it a matter of them being completely unable to articulate words? Is it a cognition to delivery of words? Like what is, what is specifically happening in your line? So words? for um, us in particular, um, we're seeing more of the cognitive aspects such as poor short-term memory, poor reasoning, um, not remembering things they did, not remembering what they had for breakfast that day, not remembering things. Obviously, a lot of people don't remember their time in the hospital because that's a blur for everybody, regardless of what you're there for. Right. Um, but having a hard time learning and carrying over information on how to walk differently now, use a walker, use adaptive equipment, um, propelling a wheelchair, feeding yourselves. Um, so all of those memory and thinking skills that you need to kind of figure all that stuff out is lacking. Wow. Um, well, it's not just an inability to talk. It's an inability to perform sort of daily functions that are dependent on that long-term memory that we have. Right. So, and also too, a part of speech and language pathology is to help people that have swallowing disorders from various issues, whether it be uh, a stroke, whatever. But if you have prolonged um, tracheostomy or placement or pro you're prolongedly intubated, meaning you're on a ventilator, um, that can impact your ability to swallow. It can affect your vocal cords. It can affect your larynx to move how it should to protect your airway so you can eat safely. So we work on a lot of those things as well. And I have seen that in my clinical practice recently, people who are um, intubated for a really, really long period of time. Um, and then they can't swallow because their, their voice, their vocal tissue is damaged from the tube being in there for so long or they're, everything just can't move in the right fashion and timing right way to swallow safely. Wow. So then that's where feeding tubes come into play or other nutritional supports, as well as uh, altered diets. So sometimes we can alter food texture and liquid texture to make it safer and easier for somebody to swallow until they're ready to start eating regular food again. This is absolutely something I would never have considered a side effect of COVID or something yeah. that a patient would deal with. Yeah. And there's a lot of great um, literature, like I like I've touched on earlier, coming out in the rehab world to kind of identify these issues and as well as different ways we need to think about approaching them as, as clinicians. And that maybe our other um, techniques and therapy things maybe wouldn't necessarily work as well as they would because there's no research on post COVID yet, you know, so we have to kind of think about um, how what we're doing, how effective it is, and also what the literature tells us. Run us through before we move on to some other components of your experience, what some specific issues that your patients are having or dealing with right now, we, we've been over an inability to swallow, an inability or difficulty talking, but if you could sort of picture your patients right now, just run through any other list of symptoms or issues that they're dealing with that we haven't already covered, because I want to be as thorough as possible right. on your end of things. You know, I would say um, probably the biggest thing that really impacts every therapy and every aspect is just their overall poor endurance and poor what we call activity tolerance, meaning their ability to uh, complete things from start to finish without getting winded or taking a break. Like even something as simple as getting washed and dressed in the morning is very exhausting for these patients who are recovering from COVID. So um, having to modify how you get washed and dressed, um, is it safe for you to get in and out of a shower right now? Or do you need to be doing um, sponge bathing or bathing at the sink? You know, like those types of things. Because the bathroom, I know we don't think about it, but the bathroom is a very dangerous place. You know, we've got tile, we've got ceramic toilets, or, uh, you know, we've got showers, it's wet, it's slippery. Um, there's a lot happening. So, you know, even something as getting in the shower 
could potentially not be a thing that they're ready to do yet. So I think that overall endurance, even the endurance to feed yourself, some people get too tired midway through their meal and then need somebody to help them for the rest of the meal. And these are younger patients. Younger patients, yes. Have you had any candid conversations with anyone about the emotional impact, the emotional trauma of going from presumably a super active life to literally not being able to bathe or feed yourself? Um, so, you know, this is something that I do experience. I've, I've had the whole time I've worked in rehab because I do see younger patients um, overall. Um, but yeah, we, we do, it, we are fortunate because there are psych, like, uh, psychological services support available for these patients. And I always do, when I do like a family education session, I do recommend follow up with a psychologist for not only the impact of the person, but then the impact that the disability is going to have on the family as well. Mm -hmm. Do they open up to you at all? Uh, people do at times, you know, you, you try to forge those therapeutic relationships and, and build that bond and you know, make it someone that they can trust and that, you know, they can talk to you about things. I mean, some people are, are hard to build that trust with and never do open up, which is fine. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to be everybody's best friend. Um, some people do talk very candidly and I do try to be as um, supportive yet, you know, supportive yet like tough love as possible. You know, there's like a fine balance and it's something that you learn as you work as a clinician. Um, I would presume you're pro-vaccine. Can we? Uh, I absolutely am. Okay. So what is it like for you scrolling headlines these days and seeing not only the distrust of the vaccine, but also the impact that the lag on vaccines has had on the spread of this variant? Do you have sort of a visceral reaction when you read the news? I do. Unfortunately, I wish that I did. I wish that I didn't. But um I definitely do. And I will tell you that my social media uh, snooze buttons for some postings and some content has really been getting actively used, especially I would say within the past like two weeks or so. Um, yeah, it just, it is, it's frustrating because we know that there's a way to prevent this and we know what we can do to help mitigate the spread of this. And then we're not doing it. Um, and, and I do understand that, you know, um, Health healthcare decisions are very personal. Mm -hmm. I do recognize that. And I'm not trying to say, do what I say, but I am just asking people to make an educated decision, not, an, not based off of some headline they saw on social media that may or may, may or may not be accurate. You know, have that conversation with your doctor, speak with your, your physicians, you know, and healthcare professionals about it and make an educated decision. Don't just do it because, or not do it because other people want you to. Which yeah, there's kind of happens. <laughs> sure. And you know, it's it's hard not to be influenced by our social circles or even like you said about things that even happen to scroll past on social media. Right. What I wanted to address and 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 not to get too devil's advocate, because I this isn't sort of an area or a niche that I think either of us are particular experts in, but when you hear people's particular concerns about what the vaccine can do to them long-term versus right. what the virus can do to them long-term. It can be dicey for some people to decide right. what set of potential consequences right. they choose. So is there any specific thing you want to say to that portion of people who maybe are on the fence, maybe recognizing that a vaccine works for some people, but for them, they're kind of nervous. Is there, what would you say? So I would say that the the technology that was uh, utilized to develop this vaccine is safe. It was safely developed. The research is out there. Um, and, you know, there's a reason why 
none of us grew up having polio or the measles, you know, and the long-term effects of those things. And I do understand that the long-term effects of the vaccine are unknown, but also too, we know what the long-term effects are going to be for COVID seemingly right now. We're seeing it. Like we're seeing how these people are affected. So I, I do know that, like I said, healthcare decisions are a very a personal choice, but I just ask that people make an educated decision and don't get their information from social media or anecdotes. Oh, well, I had a friend who had a um, their dog walkers, mailman's, hairdresser's son died from the vaccine. No, come on. Like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, like. I mean- it's harder because you you do hear of enough vaccine reaction stories right. that and I'm a, I'm pretty unshakable after I've made up my mind but sometimes it's enough to scrolling the news or your Facebook yep. is enough to make you question okay what did I just do but right um like I said I just I want people just to really make that educated choice and decision I'm a list maker I'm a pro con list maker for every aspect of my life that's what I do. Make yourself a list, go to the doctor. That's, you know, um, and then, you know, and then for, it, it is frustrating too, when people say, well, it's not FDA approved. Okay. Well, neither are half the vitamins on the shelves at your local groceries or your, your local grocery store. So really step back and think about other things that you do that aren't regulated or approved. And then think about like, all right, wait a minute. And then also too, it's, we're looking for full FDA approval in about, mm, let's say like a month. Right. So like, it's a moot point, in my opinion. What do you think about you're close enough to the New York metro area that you've, I will be impacted or have been impacted already um, when it goes into effect by the sort of vaccine passport or vaccine mandate that the mayor there is requiring people who want to go into certain establishments Mm -hmm. have vaccination. How's that? How's that going over? And what buzz are you hearing in your circles? Oh, well, um, I mean, either people are really for it or really against it. I'm finding that there is no middle ground. Mm -hmm. People either really love the idea or or really, really hate the idea. Um, I know for um, me personally, it doesn't bother me that much. Um, But um, for some, you know, people that I know that are unvaccinated, you know, they were like, well, I wouldn't go to that place anyway. Like that's their, their take on it. I'm like, well, that's okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you, you do have the benefit of seeing the impact of this virus for very firsthand every day. Right. People's minds would change were they to have an experience with someone who. Oh, a hundred percent. Absolutely. I feel like um, a lot of this is very abstract for a lot of people. And unless you see it firsthand um, or have a loved one that was really ill from it um, or in the hospital or whatever, like you don't, you can't really appreciate how, how terrible it really is and how vulnerable people really are. Like I have two parents that are immunocompromised and and sick. So I, you know, am very, I have started not stopping, they, you know, not stopping over to their home now, or because my dad's having a major procedure this week coming up. So I am like staying away. They are both fully vaccinated, but still, you know, they're just not going anywhere. Um, And I think that if you were to have someone affected or, Um, I would say the saddest thing that I saw or one of the saddest things like outside of of working is um, people who lost loved ones to COVID that couldn't have proper funerals for them or proper um, like memorial services or whatever they would have liked to have done for their loved one. You know, like um, 
I had a friend who lost somebody, not COVID, not COVID related, but during COVID, you know, times last year, and they had a funeral for this person, and they could only have 10 people, you know, and, and it's like, how do you pick and choose who gets to mourn a person? Mm-hmm. You know, some people need that closure to go to a service and, and, you know, do whatever they feel is necessary. And a lot of people weren't given that opportunity um, to say, to properly say goodbye to people. And I find that just to be heartbreaking. That's awful. It is. It is. And also too, um, you know, my one friend who I referenced, you know, who's the nurse practitioner, she said, just seeing people die alone in the hospital is just gut wrenching because, you know, that's not normally how it happens for people. Yeah. So many side effects or impact that we don't anticipate when you hear the news that a novel virus has broken out, the pandemic is here, lockdown. We think, okay, we get through this and very sort of one faceted on the impact mm-hmm. we could potentially have, i.e. life or death. But these sort of nuanced issues yeah. that people in the healthcare field have been dealing with really, to me at least, brings a, a valuable perspective, which is why I'm so grateful you're talking to us. Oh, yeah. It's just, um, and, and two, you know, like I had written uh, an article for my national organizations, uh, like mag- quarterly, like magazine, back um, when things were were, t- were a lot tougher. And just like the impact on the mental health of myself and my colleagues was immense, you know, because we all were just so um, unsettled all the time. And I live alone. So I would be at work all day doing, you know, all kinds of things with people who were just as heightened and anxious and nervous and upset as I was. And then I'd come home and have nobody to talk to about it. And yeah, like I FaceTime call, you know, Zoom, like whatever, but it's just not the same as having somebody with you or being able to go out after work and just kind of decompress and and be social with people. It was very isolating. And I started going to therapy regularly um, because I just needed to work through that. Um, I'm a huge proponent of therapy, very open about my therapy around here. So I think the most stable people are the ones that acknowledge their momentary instability. I mean, we all, we need it. Right. And, you know, and the, the response I got from that, that small piece that I wrote, um, you know, from other speech pathologists, because it was in a speech pathology thing, you know, was really great. Like I got some really nice, encouraging messages like thank you for saying that which you know when I wrote it it was more therapeutic for me to write something like that to be honest um and I like to write so it was a way for me to kind of word vomit my feelings um you know as articulately as I could and um therapy really helped it helped me kind of like I said work through all that and I'm hoping that if someone else read that it would empower them to kind of seek the same kind of support that I needed during that time because especially for our you know my colleagues down um, in some hot spots right now in the South and Midwest, like I, you know, I don't envy them what they're going through right now. Explain what that is like, because for people who are ignorant to your field, and yeah. this goes for anyone in any aspect of sort of um, caretaker on patient mm-hmm. uh, care, what are we missing? What do you want to drill home that um, maybe media is not getting right in the messaging or not? being as impactful in the messaging? Um, that's kind of a loaded question um, because there's so much that's not good. Um, <laughs> but I would say that, you know, the media covers how difficult and how challenging it is for us and how challenging it is for patients and their families. But what I would like to see is like to start to see some of those long-term stories, long-term spotlights, features, follow-ups on younger people. Um, 
you know, I'll be honest, I don't have cable and I don't have cable for a reason. Um, so I, you know, but I would like to see kind of the spotlights on the, the research and everything that goes into caring for these people long-term. Um, because I feel like sometimes they like to highlight things when it's still novel. And like, I, I say, well, I say like sexy, you know, like, oh, this is like the new thing. Right. And then it kind of, you know, I mean, it's always, you know, on the back burner in the D block of the news broadcast or something, but it really should be up top, you know? Yep. Uh, oh, I know all about the A and A, B, C, D block, the old kicker at the end. Yeah. Right. You want to stack the most important stuff at the top. And admittedly, at least right. traditional media tends to sort of lose the scent. But right. And two, I think the fact that it's so that this has been overly, overly politicized is also really heartbreaking for me, because at the end of the day, it's not about how you vote or who you vote for or what your your policies on, you know, whatever it is. It's about that this is really affecting people like these are people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what 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 some um, other people watching these media outlets doesn't understand. Like it's it's not a it's not a want you versus me thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not personal until it's personal. And it's right. that right. it takes an experience that's potentially negative for someone to open up their perspective. Right. I know. And that's what I mean. They're like, no, you, you know, you only want that because you did this. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Like, and sometimes it's just not worth the argument for me, honestly, anymore. Well, you should try, try to be a parent in a school system when they oh when about masks comes up. I'm like, out. See you later. I know what I like. I know what I want. But my my friends show me like the Facebook groups and oh. the comments and the I'm like, no. I'm like, do you all talk to your kids like that? My God, like not the worst. And you know the whole the whole sort of ethos behind this podcast is. You know, we kind of meet in the middle. It's a, it's a gray space. It's not overly, I'm not a galvanizer by nature. I'm like a Libra, right? But even this conversation has tested me because there are moments where I want to get on my soapbox. Yeah. I, you know, it's what you said. It's probably not going to convince anyone new. And hearing perspectives is what ultimately brings people around to the best conclusion for them. So this is the best thing probably that we could do is just in what you're doing, continue to offer people the, the, your experience, the, the um, sort of synopsis of what you've learned actually yeah. dealing with this. Yeah. And you know, like I said, I don't speak for all, all speech language pathologists. I don't speak for all health right. workers. This is just my own personal take and, and experience with it. Um, but I, I can speak for all of us when, when I say like, we're tired. <laughs> we're very tired. We're very anxious. We're very stressed out. Like it's just, and the amount of anxiety that now is like building, knowing that all of this is just happening again is just, it's tough. It's, it's really tough. And you know, it's insult to injury, it feels. Yeah. And especially for my colleagues who came to work every day, um, who have small children and families at home. Like I felt guilty that I lived by myself and that I could come home safely without fear of spread, you know, doing any damage. I would just come home. It's just me here, you know, mm -hmm. no big deal. Um, but I did, I had like a lot of guilt for my colleagues who had uh, either uh, immunocompromised family members, spouses, parents that lived with them or children, um, small children, uh, colleagues of mine that were pregnant that mm -hmm. got COVID. Um, you know, uh, I had a couple, yeah. And then, um, you know, like, oh, excuse me, like all of those types of things. And then I also felt guilty that 
I was helping rehab people and I got to see people get better. But then I had colleagues who didn't, who were in ICUs, you know, helping prone people so they could breathe better. And then I'm getting to do like the fun work. I mean, I guess if there is any kind of fun work in this, you know, I was getting to do like that fun work of help, helping people get better. So I felt guilty about that. I just felt guilty all the time. Yeah, all the time. Sure. I mean, there's so many, there's so many emotional components to what you do. And and I can imagine how difficult it would be to navigate all of that on a daily basis. That was something you told me too, that I found interesting, just as a side note that patients are being treated stomach down prone. Yeah. Breathe. I did not know that that was a beneficial position for breathing. It doesn't like that. They flip them. Yeah, they turn. Yeah, they what they do is they turn them over on their stomachs. Um, you know, patients who are having a really hard time oxygenating while on the ventilators and things like that, putting them in the prone position improve their oxygen sats, right? Improve their breathing abilities. Um, because when we talk about like our lungs, they're actually back here, really in the back, right? Right. So they're not like everyone pictures them here up front, you know, in your rib cage, but really they're in the back, and there's a bunch of other stuff in front of them. So you know, so that yeah, they would flip. you know, have whole prone, what they call, they called them proning teams in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So it would be like a a physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist, nursing, and they would make these teams in like these acute care hospitals that had a high population. So then they would all go and help each other prone these patients. Oh my gosh. Can't imagine. Because like trying to, trying to turn somebody over that can't help you is very, is very challenging. You can't do it by yourself. Um, even you know, even trying to help turn somebody in rehab who can help you, but not that much, is challenging. Sure. There's like a lot of body mechanics. You don't want to hurt yourself. Like you don't want to bend over in the wrong way. All kinds of stuff. So yeah, gosh, all the unforeseen challenges. Yeah. Um, before we wrap, I want I want to get this on record so that we can clearly understand what it is we're dealing with. Is this variant especially? more dangerous or sinister in your opinion? In my opinion, I would say, I would say, yes, it's more easily transmitted. It's affecting younger people. Yes. I, in my opinion, yes. And your work sort of bears that out with the younger group of people that you're treating. Yeah. That's what we're starting to see. We're starting to get those younger people in rehab. Any final message as we wrap up, Allison, that you want to drill home? Um, the benefit of your perspective is just tremendous. And I'm grateful that you talked to, with us, but any, any parting message um, that we, so when we shut this podcast off, we hear it ring in our ears. Yeah. I would just, um, you know, as, as cliche as this sounds, you know, just be kind to one another because this is really hard for everybody. Um, you don't know what your friends are dealing with at work. You, you know, it's, it's fighting over wearing a mask is so trivial it's such a simple thing you can do just to help. Um, like I just say, be kind to one another because there's a lot, a lot of not nice things being said currently uh, out there. Like I said, my my media, social media snooze buttons have really gotten a workout this past few weeks. Thank God for that. One good thing about social media, the ability to show. Right, I know. Like, so I just want to see dogs, people's kids. I want to see what you're eating for dinner. Like that's what Let's keep it simple, people. Right. Allison, I'm so grateful for your time and your perspective. Thank you for talking with me. 
Oh, absolutely. Anytime, Sunny. Thank you for having me today. We will be back very shortly with other accounts, firsthand accounts of people working um, on the front lines as this variant continues to spread throughout the country. So stay tuned for that. I'm just going to drop them when I get them. Um, we're kind of in the process of scheduling a bunch of things right now, but you can expect to hear from an OBGYN based here in Florida who's talking all about pregnancy and COVID, the specific symptoms to watch out for, what best treatments need to happen, and whether or not they should get vaccinated. You'll also hopefully, fingers crossed, I'm working on this one here from an ER nurse who's based here in the Orlando area as well, who's seeing some pretty intense stuff. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and follow along on Instagram at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I-A-B-A-T-T-A. All of the latest blog posts are at wegotatalk.com slash blog. <laughs>